0: Welcome to the program, the Friday show. We've come to the end of another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car... The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. It's a call now banner. At the top of the screen, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we got some stuff going on. We're busy tonight here at Calvary Chapel. San Antonio is one of those nights that, as a pastor, um, makes everything worthwhile. Um, uh, we're actually going to ordain um, Louis in there, uh pastor. He's been on our, at our church and on staff and teaching our foundations class for a long, long time. And tonight, we're going to officially ordain him as a pastor. And uh, I promise you, whatever he shares tonight uh, will be a blessing. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. So Louis will be doing the the teaching tonight, sharing his testimony, his heart, whatever God's put on his heart. We like to do that. Uh, on nights that we ordain people. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. If you can't get here, you can watch it at calvarysa.com, and you will be blessed. I promise you that. And, of course, Sunday, I I told everybody during the week, please pray for me because uh, the single most difficult chapter to teach on a Sunday morning in all of the Bible is where I am this week, Acts chapter 7. It's Stephen's, not really a defense, but a a defense of our faith. It's Old Testament history. It's the longest chapter in the book of Acts. It's the longest um, message or sermon in the book of Acts. um, And wonderfully, wonderfully anointed by God uh, and you know it just it has to be done together, so I got to figure out a way in forty minutes to do sixty verses that's really, really hard so uh but it but it's I think a really worthwhile Bible study. and then we're getting ready. I can't believe how quickly time's going. The following Sunday will be Palm Sunday, and the Sunday after that of course, is Easter Sunday, and we'll be talking more about those in the study uh, in our showtime next week. Let's get to some questions that have been sent in. Our first one is Anonymous from our mobile app. Uh, Hi, Pastor On. On yesterday's show, you said God could not create evil. But doesn't Isaiah 54, 16 say just that? It is I who have created the destroyer to create havoc. Please clarify this for me. Thanks. Um, anonymous, this is really pretty simple. God could not create evil uh, and we know that very specifically from the new testament god can't tempt anybody uh, he's not the author of temptation in him is is light there's no darkness at all but but you're misunderstanding what isaiah 54:16 is saying it is god who created lucifer the angel who when given free will and able to choose uh, chose to rebel against God, and we know that he swept a, a third of the angels in heaven uh, with him, and they all fell um, in, into that seduction. So um, he he simply created the devil. Did he know what the devil was going to do? Yeah. A lot of times people will call in on this show and say, "Well, well, if God knew he was going to do that, why did God create him?" Well, God knows that you're going to do evil, and I'm going to do evil. And he created us. So he gives everybody the same chance. In this case, we're talking about the, the, the angelic world. And uh, um, it's, it's especially appropriate and anonymous because Lucifer was God's most beautiful and equally the most powerful angel ever created. Um, Michael, the archangel, is his counterpart in terms of power. But Michael, we're not told is beautiful. We're told he's terrifying. If you saw him, you'd fall down on your face and and be sick. And but 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 uh, Lucifer was Ezekiel twenty eight, Isaiah fourteen, the most beautiful of all of God's creation. Uh, light seemed to emanate from him wherever he went. Light bearers, is what the name means. And if you read the King James version of uh, Ezekiel 28, it, it would seem to indicate that he was what we would call the worship leader of, of heaven. Um, as his wings would, would rise, music would, would emanate. So um, God created him, and just like God created um, both angels and humans, uh, he gave every single one of his creations uh, a choice. Uh, will you love me? Will you serve me? Or, or will you not serve me? Will you reject me and want to do what is uh, in your mind and in your heart to do? And obviously, in this case, he knew what Satan was going to do. Uh, he knew before he was Satan what he was going to do. And that's exactly what happened. So thank you very, very much for that question. Here's a question from our mobile app. This one is from Scott. Hi, Pastor Ron. You were talking about how Jesus, when he died on the cross, went down to free the captives in a place called paradise. Uh, the word paradise made me think of the Garden of Eden. Could it be that God, in hiding, uh, or is hiding the Garden of Eden there? Um, no, Scott. This is a completely different place. Um, um, paradise was a descriptive term. For both of these places, descriptive the of the Garden of Eden, it, it was a virtual paradise. There was no sin, uh, nothing that that was bad ever could have happened there, until that opportunity to make that free will choice uh, was given to Adam and to Eve. Um, but but these are not the same two places. Um, in in Luke chapter sixteen, the place called Paradise. It also is called Abraham's bosom. Um, uh, obviously, it is a wonderful place. That's the description of the name paradise. But it's not an official name or or a proper name. Uh, rather, it's a descriptive name for uh, this place. Now, this particular place when Jesus had to descend to set the captives free. We know that from Ephesians chapter 4. When he set the captives free... Uh, He descended into, we we call it the abyss. The Greek word is abuso. And there is literally a place in the center of the earth um, hidden from man. Um, And God can do that. Uh, And that place is a place where the unrighteous dead are being held. And until Jesus died and then was risen from the dead, the other side of that place the place that's called paradise uh, that was inhabited by the righteous dead those who believed in jesus by faith now remember they didn't know the name jesus they didn't they didn't understand jesus and the relationship we can have with him because he hadn't come yet but they believed god's word uh, abraham uh, genesis 12 says believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, Scott, we all get saved the same way, by faith. And and when we believe God, then there is a credit made to our account. Imagine going to your bank one day and finding out that somebody made a deposit, of like a bazillion dollars. And you just say, well, where would all this money come from? And somebody says it was a gift. Well, um, Those who came before Jesus chronologically, they looked forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. Those of us who come after Jesus chronologically, easier for us. I think we look backwards at the cross as a historical fact. So uh, not the same place. um, The Garden of Eden, of course, Scott, would have been completely destroyed in the flood, Noah's flood. Uh, and the topography of the world uh, everywhere, not just not just in the Middle East, but the topography of the world everywhere uh, would have been completely changed um, and devastated. That's exactly what happened here. Good question, Scott. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate the question. Here's a question from Barbara. She wants to know, when is divorce permissible? Um, you know, Barbara... Uh, Jesus, talking about Moses, he said, uh, God permitted, um, or or, um, Moses, really, the law permitted a certificate of divorce being given. Why? Because our hearts were hard. Now, that's not a biblical reason for divorce. It is the human reason that we divorce, especially we who are Christians, uh, who have promised God that we would stay married. Um, Barbara, God only permits divorce in the cases of Uh, unfaithfulness adultery, infidelity abandonment Um, if the unbeliever leaves, let him or let her leave so if somebody leaves you, obviously you're not uh, uh, you're a victim here, and in that case um, God would permit you to divorce, and then the other would be um, physical violence um, abuse Um, God has called us to live in peace I'm sorry, God called us to live in peace. And um, when somebody is physically abusing and breaking that peace, that then becomes grounds for divorce. Now, I always get the question, Barbara, what about verbal abuse? Um, You can't divorce somebody because he or she is a jerk. You can't do that. That's that's not reason. But, but God wants you to be safe. He wants you to be in, in a relationship that is enriching. And if you're being abused, you can't. And I always, always, always had this when I get this question, Barbara. Anybody, any woman listening to this program, If you are in a relationship with somebody who is physically violent with you, you need to go and you need to go now. You need to go and you need to go now. If you will do that and save yourself, um, the Lord is fine with you filing for divorce. You need to get out of that situation and you need to do it right away. So, Barbara, thank you very, very much. I hope that answers your question. Let's go to our first phone call today, Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, um,
3: I, I remember hearing you on the radio one time saying that uh, you don't teach the book of Leviticus, right?
0: No, I, I said I haven't. Not that I don't.
3: Oh, I, I,
2: <laughs> oh you I, haven't. Yeah, oh. yeah.
0: unfortunately. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get to them all. But uh, I, I've been kind of saving Leviticus for last. I actually taught oh. Lamentations before I taught Leviticus. That's how I feel about Leviticus.
3: Oh, okay, I'm sorry. But um, so I decided I haven't really read that chapter so i i got to chapter 11 and i'm like we don't do that anymore we don't sacrifice animals or throw blood on the altar or, or burn them up and upgrade an aroma to the lord and all that i, I know mm-hmm. we don't do and i know that that was in time of moses and i was like well there was a reason why god did that but that was before jesus okay yes <laughs> yeah. I mean, because the sacrifices of sins and there's some other stuff that they did it for, but um, this Moses was being obedient to the Lord, and that's what I get get it from. It was uh, it was just he was being obedient yes. to what God asked him to do.
0: Well, and and you know, uh, all of Israel was was required by God to be obedient. So the laws and the sacrifices, the offerings that were part of Leviticus. Um, that, that was part of Jewish life. Um, and, and I think for us, it's hard to understand um, simply because we don't live. There's no temple. Uh, we don't live in a sacrificial system. Um, but, but all of those sacrifices, all of those laws, all of those um, laws about cleansing and, and, and uh, uh, blood and clean and unclean, all of those laws pointed to Jesus. And, Jimmy, yeah, I think exactly. I, th- I think the best thing you can do uh, as a New Testament Christian when it comes to uh, reading Leviticus is to read it along with Hebrews because the book of Hebrews in the New Testament sort of fills out. I've often said that the Old Testament, um, especially the first five books, the Old Testament is like a, 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 a connect-the-dots coloring book. And if you connect the dots, you know, one, two, three, four, and, and, and you get the outline of a picture, well, the New Testament fills in that outline, brings it to sort of living color. And that's what Hebrews does in the book of Leviticus. So I, I'm going to teach it. and Lord willing, I'm going to be alive that long. Um, but um, um, the, the the thing you got to do is put a picture of Jesus over the whole book. And, and then it begins to make a lot of sense to us. Anything else, Jimmy?
3: No, sir. Uh, the, what, what, it made sense to me because Jesus was the perfect land that was sacrificed for us. So his blood covers our sin.
0: That's right. And it's his blood that makes us a pleasing aroma to the Lord, even when we know we're not. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you very, very much. I appreciate very uh, the Call very much. Here's an anonymous question, and I'll say up front: these are these question always makes me frustrated and, and angry not not unrighteously angry. I hope it's righteous anger, but I never ever get this. Uh, this question is: Will you talk about why there are so many clicks in Christian church circles? Now, anonymous, the reason I don't understand clicks. Um, I don't understand this kind of communication, is Is because the whole church is a clique. Christians, we are a clique. We hang out with one another. We serve with one another. We rejoice with one another. When we uh, are hurt, we mourn for one another. That's what a, a, a clique really is, people that hang together. And when people come into church and say, well, you know, in this church there's all kinds of cliques, I get so frustrated because the the reality is, People that serve together are going to hang together, and the people that are on the outside saying, "Well, there's cliques in there," they're they're people that aren't serving. It's that simple. When you come to, and I'll just use our church as an example. When you come to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, you're going to find a whole lot of people that love hanging out with one another. I mean, they're they're here all the time. They serve together. They they've experienced things in life together. And when somebody from the outside comes in and says, well, you know, the church is full of cliques, it's, it's just that they have decided not to be a part of what God is doing. And it's almost like a cry out for attention. It's, it's like we walk in the door and say, um, give me attention, give me attention. And as Christians, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to serve alongside one another. Our purpose is to exhort one another, spurring one another on to deeds. Good deeds, uh, the New Testament says. But, but there is no click. Um, you know, the, the reality is, um, if you expose yourself, Paula has a saying, hands down, heart open. If you'll come into a church and be vulnerable, then you're going to find yourself right in the middle of the big click. And it's not a click that keeps people out. It's a click that invites people in. And it's always the people who are on the outside. Well, I'm shy and nobody noticed I was here. I can promise you at our church anonymous, and again, I can only speak for our church. It is impossible to come into our church if you haven't been here before and not be greeted by tons and tons of people. Maybe even to the point of feeling like, wow, why are they in my face kind of thing. Um just if you came too early, let's say you came to first service early, and and people are just getting here, and you're seated all by yourself in a chair at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio before first service starts, you're going to be approached by ten, fifteen people. Those are the clicks, because they're serving together, and and that 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 approaching is is inviting you in to be a part of what God is doing. And it's just always sort of frustrating to me. I just All you have to do, if you walk into a church and you think there are cliques, all you have to do is walk up to people and say, hey, my name is so-and-so, what's your name? That's all you have to do. And I, again, I don't understand the motive for this. Um, and yet it's something that we always hear. You Christians, you know you have cliques. I can promise you, There are no cliques. People say, but but everybody has favorites. Well, you know, we hang around with the people that we we know the best, the people that we spend time with. But I can promise you here at Calvary Chapel, the people that I consider leaders, and by that I don't mean just pastors and elders. We've got a whole subgroup of people that have been here a long time or have committed to serving and have, have demonstrated their faithfulness. Um their whole job when they come in here on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a Friday, their whole job is to find people that they don't know. If they see somebody who looks like they're in pain, go talk to them, pray for them. If you see somebody that that is sitting alone, go welcome them to the church and 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 answer any questions that they might have so there's no clicks. In this church, that's just sort of a, I don't want to get involved, but I want everybody to come to me kind of response. And I'll never understand it. I will never understand it. I'm not a an outgoing person by nature. Um, so I would be one that would be maybe a little unlikely to go up to a group of people and start talking. But um, again, at our church um people are going to come to you and all you got to do is be vulnerable be open and if you've been in a church where you've been hurt and clicks occur uh get over yourself honestly get over yourself and put yourself out there and for those of you who are shy and you're uncomfortable a little bit um remember, one of the reasons that God grabbed hold of you was to change that about you. And so you get involved. You get involved. So I hope that makes sense to you. Again, it's hard for me to really understand what people are talking about. I've just watched it for so long um, that uh, you know we're in control of who we talk to or don't talk to and um, you know, the the man or the woman that says, well, I'm going to go in there and I don't want people to approach me or, you know, I'm, I'm going to get to know them before I, uh, I'm i vulnerable to them. Uh, you're the ones who are missing out. You're the ones missing out. Here's the last question I'll take for this half of the program and then we'll get to, to one, another one that's always frustrating for me at the top of the break. This one is from Anna or Anna, depends on ethnicity. Um, she says, what is your view of limited atonement? And it is a doctrine that is so damaging, uh, so wrong, um, that um, I have no view of it other than that. It's, I can't say it's heretical because there are real Christians who believe in limited atonement. You know, primarily I'm talking about Calvinists or those who are Reformed. And limited atonement simply says that God died only for the sins of the elect, Forget the fact that the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world, that whosoever believes, they would say, oh, no, no. Uh, God knows everything, and God is sovereign, and so he wouldn't die for people that he didn't want uh, to to go to, if they were going to go to hell. He only died for those he chose to go to heaven. And that is such an insidious doctrine. I've had people who believe in limited atonement say to me, well, I can't believe that God loves everybody, so I can't go tell somebody that Jesus loves them. I'm just think, where do you get that? God is love. For God so loved the world. Oh, yeah, but world doesn't mean world. It means exactly that. So, uh, Anna or Anna, uh, limited atonement is is, um, a fruit stealer, a joy killer, it is in complete contradistinction to the revealed nature and the character of God. Um, I mean, one needs only to read First Corinthians 13 and see what real biblical love is about. The height and width and depth and breadth of God's love. And it, it completely eliminates any possibility of limited atonement being true doctrinally. So... Um, my view of limited atonement is uh, that that it's to be avoided at all costs. From cover to cover, the Bible demonstrates just the opposite is true. God's um, atoning sacrifice was unlimited in the sense that it was aff- aff- uh, efficacious and effective. It's effective for all of the people in the world. But it's efficacious, has value for, practical value for all. Only those who receive the promise. That's all. But but God's sacrifice, Jesus dying on the cross, uh, is um, uh, for every single person who's ever lived. And if we understand that, then we understand the second part of, of our relationship with God is based on our choice of God. And limited atonement certainly eliminates... Uh, any possibility of of that being consistent with the nature of God. Thank you, Anna or Anna, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. we got 30 minutes left in our week. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
0: welcome back to the second half of our friday show we'd love your calls and questions to close out the program today 340-9585 Here is a question from Richard. Boy, I've been getting this question a lot in the last month or month and a half. Richard says, I think the Bible teaches a plurality of elders. Why do you have one pastor who leads everything instead of sharing leadership? Richard, I have answered this question so many times. So please listen and listen carefully. Your understanding of the New Testament is faulty. It's that simple. You can have an opinion, but your opinion is wrong based on the evidence of the Bible. Uh, Point elders in the churches. We're told that by the Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistles. But, but the elders, while it's plural, it's plural because the churches were plural. In the book of Galatians, it started out, to the churches in Galatia. So the reason that that the the elders is plural is because each of those churches needed their own pastor, and that's what the elders were the overseers uh the 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 we call them pastors uh, that's exactly what they were when he says, "Appoint elders," he's saying, "Put somebody in charge of that church," and that's the way it's been from the New testament time so um you've got to understand it's it's plural. Because a church a mile away from another church needs a new pastor, and they were house churches. We understand that uh, the churches were typically small, at least um, um, whatever the, the 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 size of the house uh, would would uh, allow. But the idea is appoint a pastor for each church, and that's what he says: appoint elders or establish elders. Uh, because the work of God requires the man that is called by God. Now, I know in our church culture, we don't like that. We just think everybody should be uh, shared responsibility. We are the, the priesthood of believers, and it's true. But remember this, the believer, each believer is given a gift. Each believer has a calling. Now, when I say a gift, at least one gift. And God calls a man. He gifts that man, and that's the one who is accountable to God to to establish the church and care for the church and feed the church and nurture the church. And um, you know, we have um, many many churches in San Antonio, Texas. Um, they all have a pastor. At least God's view uh, uh, picture is, is there should be a pastor, one man. God will give the vision to that one man. And then that one man will gather around him those uh, who are like-minded, like-hearted, and who will, will use the gifts that God has given them. Now, I have it at our church, Richard. Um, I think um, I always I forget the number. I think how many pastors are we? We have 10 right now. 10 plus tonight? No. To, okay, know. so after tonight, I'll have 10 pastors on our staff. And um, I think some of them are better teachers than I am. Um, but, but that's not the issue here. The issue is, who did God choose? I tell my church all the time, believe it or not, I was a gift from God to you, and you're stuck with me. Until God says for me to go, whether it's because I die or to get too old or whatever the situation might be. Until that time, uh, I'm the man God has put here in this position. Um, I like to think for such a time as this. And, and you know, Richard, I don't know the the, the numbers of questions about this. Um, um We do share leadership. I certainly don't do anything. I'm a wonderful delegator. God has given me men whose hearts I trust completely. Uh, I know how they're going to respond in certain situations. And because of that, um, uh, I have no problem at all sharing um, the, the leadership. It's just that they use their gifts and I use mine. I've got an administrative pastor uh, who who's a great Bible teacher. Uh, I've got Pastor Ken, who will eventually take over from me. Um, I, I get all of that. Um, but for now, until God releases me, uh, then that's my job. So um, that's why. I, I don't like the term senior pastor. Maybe I'm a little sensitive because I'm actually old now. But, um, I, you know, I, I'm not... Um, um i am over the other guys but uh, you know i i don't think they think of me as as a as somebody who lords it over them um uh i just my job is to help them utilize their gifts and fulfill the calling that god has given in their lives but the idea that there should be a plurality of people men who are teaching uh, is just is just sort of american nonsense uh, that's just not the way it was supposed to be. I, I certainly don't think when when uh, Paul would send Timothy or Titus uh, to put over church, I don't think anybody expected uh, anybody but Timothy or Titus to do the teaching. When Paul established a church, he stayed, for instance, for uh, three and a half years in Ephesus. He spent a year and a half in in Corinth. Um, I'm 100% certain that every Sunday when people met together, it was the Apostle Paul who was doing the teaching. And he's the one who wrote about appointing elders. So the Bible does not teach a plurality of elders in the sense that, you know what, we're going to have a teaching team and we're going to share that teaching. Uh, that's that's the issue that isn't biblical. It's not biblically correct. So Richard, I hope that answers your question. i I'm not sure you like the answer, but, um, you know, be a good steward of the Bible, workman, rightly dividing the Word of God. Understand the history. Understand um, the, the needs of the time. Um, things are different now in the sense that we've got buildings and lots of people can come to them. They didn't, but every one of those churches needed a single man called by God to be the officiating elder or we would call pastor of the church. Here's a question from Crystal. If a pastor has made false prophecies and has not repented, should he be allowed in the pulpit? It seems like no one is holding him accountable. Um, Crystal, here's where you've got to take the accountability. Two things, and I know we don't like to do this, but if a pastor uh, is making false prophecies, um, then you've got to go to him and, and point that out. It's it's simple. Why are you saying this? You made a prophecy that this would happen and it didn't happen or something contrary happened. So respectfully, Crystal, go to uh, this pastor and say, um, you know, you're making prophecies and they're not coming true or they're inconsistent with what the Bible already teaches and and I think that's reason for you to repent. Now, Obviously, in most cases, that man, or or in some cases, a woman, is not going to step down. And that, Crystal, when you've got to take accountability for your own spiritual well-being. And what you need to do in a case like that is leave. Go find yourself another church, a Bible-teaching church, a solid, grounded Bible-teaching church. Somebody that can use your gifts and give you an opportunity to, to serve the body of Christ. If that doesn't describe the church you're in, it doesn't sound like it. that's the church you're in, then you can simply say, I've got to go. Let the Lord lead you to someplace else where you can get solid teaching, where nobody pretends to be a prophet. If one of my pastors would say, I'm a prophet, thus saith the Lord, they would last here about a minute after I found out. That's just simply not... Uh, biblical, it's inconsistent and and we've got to watch the flock for false prophecies. Now as somebody who goes to a church um, it's not your calling to change it. It's not your calling to establish justice. It is your calling to go to that person individually, in love. If you'll do that then God will be able to, to at least use you the Holy Spirit will be able to use what you said whether or not that person ever repents but uh, clearly Crystal that pastor does not belong in the pulpit Uh, he is a danger to the people that God has asked him to be a good shepherd over and um, if he won't do anything if the church won't do anything then it's your responsibility to protect your own walk 340-9585 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Um, let me look at this. I might need to... little heads up. If you've got children in the car, this is a question dealing with sex. You might want to turn the volume down just a moment. I'm not going to be crude or anything, but the question is pretty direct. Anonymous says, how can I, as an adult woman, get rid of the feeling that sex is dirty and to be only tolerated? This is what I was taught my whole life and now do not even uh, enjoy sex with my husband. Uh, Anonymous, th- this, is, this is really a situation where you need to sit down with your pastor. You and your husband together need to sit down uh, with your pastor and get some really good solid counseling um if you were in my office there'd be some follow-up questions I'd have I'd want to get to know a little bit more about the the genesis of your guilt um, um but 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 please get counseling. having said that, uh, I think at some point we've got to accept the fact that the Bible teaches that sex is a beautiful gift from God to the to, to the human race that he loves so much. We've got to have enough faith to believe that. Read the Song of Songs. Um, um, it, it's a passionate, explosive love story. And the idea that sex is dirty is certainly uh, an idea that the devil wants to get a hold of us. Uh, he doesn't want us to enjoy it. He doesn't want marriages, Christian marriages in particular, to be passionate. He wants to get us confused between passion and lust. Um, and here's the thing. Um, you said this is what you were taught your whole life. You've got to really wrestle with the Lord and ask him, do you have enough faith to believe Second Corinthians 5.17? The old is gone, the new has come. Now, I realize the the guilt and the the buttons the enemy pushes. I also realize the psychological damage that has been done to a lot of people that have been taught sex is dirty. Um, but, But here's why the Holy Spirit lives in us. Because your responsibility then is to simply find out what's true and then choose between that which is true and will bless you and that which is false and has been a burden to you. I want you to imagine for a moment just how awful it is for the Lord when He gave you this beautiful gift. First, He gave you the gift of your husband, and He gave you this beautiful gift of sex within marriage. He wants it to be passionate. He wants it to be playful. Um, The the marriage bed should be fun. Um, And when you're not taking Him at His word, imagine how sad He is. So I think this is what you have to do. Forget the feeling and hold on to the fact. The fact is, God loves you. God created um, uh, you and your husband, your marriage to be a a, a place where sex is enjoyed, and he wants to set you free. And if you'll give him that opportunity through obedience, if you'll be vulnerable, if you'll recognize that when those thoughts of guilt and this is dirty, I shouldn't be doing it, um, if you'll get rid of that, Take those thoughts captive. I promise you it'll change everything. I once had a a youngish woman, not a kid, but a youngish woman going through premarriage counseling. And she just said, you know, I I just feel like if I were to enjoy sex, I'd go straight to hell. And I was taken aback by that. You know, this is a, a woman who'd been a Christian, yet she was taught, like you indicate here, that, well, you know, having sex with your husband is sort of like your duty. Um... And, 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 and that is to so short circuit what God has done for you and the joy that he wants you to experience in that physical relationship you have with your husband. So please, please, please go talk to somebody, get some counseling, but make a decision. Be prepared to make a decision. Are you going to believe your feelings? Are you going to believe the lies of the enemy? Or are you going to believe the promises in the Word of God? I always say, anonymous, that the longer we've been with somebody, the more we should love them, the more passionate we should be. You know, the world kind of paints it just the opposite. You know, we're when we're young, we're all um, hot and bothered, you know, and 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 then we we sort of cool down as we get old. That's not the case. It shouldn't be the case any more than than our we should love Jesus more if we've been walking with Him for ten years than we did when we got saved. why because we know him better. and in this particular case uh, anonymous you you're you're ripping off your husband. Um, you're, you're, the, the witness of your marriage is has, has been compromised and then on a personal level you' you're you don't understand just how much God loves you. So this is a matter for deep prayer but please please. Talk to somebody, go to your church, talk to a pastor, uh, and I would suggest you and your husband go together, talk to your pastor and, and his wife, and find out um, what's really true. And And then let the Holy Spirit do the work of changing you. Thank you for the call or for the question, but I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. Three four zero and ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. A question from James. Um, James says, "How does one have their name blotted out of the book book of life?" James, you, you can't have your name blotted out of the book of life. You know, Jesus promises in in the book of Revelation. He promises, "I will never blot your name out of the book of life." And, and and people, I don't know how they make the connection, it's illogical, but well, if Jesus says he never would blot out our name, that must mean he blots out some names. He doesn't. Once your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it is there forever and ever and ever. It is safe, it's secure, uh, protected by the, the loving hands of God the Father and God the Son. So, Um, you can't have your name blotted out of the book of life. Once it's in, remember, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows every heart. Galatians says that God will not be mocked. He cannot be deceived. Um, Very simply, James, it it means he knows those who really belong to him, and those are the names that get written in the book of life. Now, I think the, the question arises because we all have experiences of people who say they're Christians, but who, in fact, um, aren't really following the Lord for very long. You know, they get excited. I'm going to heaven. uh, But then they just sort of quickly drift away. And we we want to assume that those people are Christians because they say they are. Uh, We live in a time where there's a whole group of Christians who believe just the opposite of what the Bible teaches, and they say they're Christian. So not everybody who says they're a Christian really is. So you cannot have your name blotted out of the book of life rest assured and be comfortable by that let's go to kenny on line one kenny thank you for calling you're on the air
2: yes thank you pastor on i just wanted to ask you a question about when jesus was uh, dying on the cross and and one thief was just uh not repented at all and the other one um Was very sorry, and and uh, when Jesus said today that you will be with me in paradise, and I know when the scripture says, and and if you could correct me, there's nothing good in this. There's you know when when you say, well, I want to share your heart, I want to share my heart with you. There's nothing good in my heart, except of course when Jesus comes in. Could you explain to me when when the thief was on the cross? And Jesus says, today, I know that he's with him in paradise, and I know he was resentful for his sin, and Jesus is God, so he already knew, you know, that this man was going to be with paradise, But um, and maybe I'm wrong about uh, Jesus knows everything about the man, mm-hmm. so... Um, yeah. And he had a repentant heart. Is that why he was sorrowful? And the other thief was, was I mean, they were they were getting ready to die, and within seconds he could go to heaven or hell. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, Kenny, that's a fascinating uh, uh, occurrence for me. One, one of the the uh, the things I'll be doing um, on on um, our Good Friday service here is talking about the, those seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And, and, and a couple of things we need to remember first and foremost is that when you, we 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 understand God knows everything He knows everything about a person, but he didn 't when He was here he 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 faced everything as a human being, so he didn 't have the divine knowledge on earth that he had, whatever he said, he said because his father told him to say it jesus didn 't have any independent thoughts, so it 's not like Jesus was hung between those two crosses and he winked at one guy and said, don't worry, it's okay for you, and looked at the other guy and said, oh, it's bad for you. It wasn't that at all, Kenny. Here's why that the, Jesus could say that man is going to be with him in paradise. At the beginning, both of the, the, the thieves hurled insults at Jesus. That's very clear when you combine the gospel accounts. Uh, they were antagonistic toward Jesus, and over the period of the hours that Jesus was on the cross, when people were mocking him and laughing at him and making accusations and spitting at him, um, the 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 two thieves, both of them, they were very close to Jesus. Both of them um, heard everything that was said. They heard Jesus's response. Imagine, Kenny, what it would have been like to to hear Jesus with the little strength that he had left, cry out to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And for one of the thieves, watching Jesus die, listening to what he said, seeing his refusal to defend himself, there was something about the way he died, and there was something about his focus, the the utter evil of his enemies, uh, the the angriness, um that affected one thief. Now both thieves were the same distance, and at some point during that process, um, one of the thieves was convinced. And when when the thief that went to hell uh, went to torment, rather, um, said uh, uh, also mocked him again. The other thief, now his heart having been moved. The other thief said, Have you no fear of God? This man has done nothing. We deserve what we've got, what we, we're in, experiencing, but this righteous man has done nothing wrong. And and so that was heart, heart, a heart that was moved and a mind that was changed about the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, when he cried out, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Kenny, that's the equivalent of us saying, Um, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. He was recognizing his unworthiness and the complete and utter worthiness and holiness of Jesus. And his life, his heart, and his eternal destination was changed forever. The other guy, same distance, heard the same things. One heart moved. One heart was unmoved. That's... The one thing that's always troubled me, fascinated me, I guess I could use both those terms, uh, how two people in the same circumstance can listen to the same words, can see the same thing, and one heart gets moved toward repentance and the other one does not. And Kenny, I can tell you, I've been around enough people on deathbeds whose hearts had become so hard. I mean, I have been ejected. I've had people use terrible language. Get him out of here. I don't want to hear about this. And, and they would curse and scream. And and other people, and I'm talking men who were really awful men, my father being one of them, suddenly say, I want to be with Jesus. I choose Jesus. So, Kenny, that's the difference between the two. It wasn't because Jesus knew he just simply said, based on your statement of faith, because we've got to believe by faith, based on what you just said, you and I, we will be together in paradise on this very day. And even that didn't move the heart, the hardened heart of the other thief on the cross. Thank you, Kenny. I appreciate the question very, very much. Hey, I appreciate you tuning in. appreciate you dealing with my voice all week. I could use some prayer. i got a 60-verse chapter to teach on Sunday. May the Lord bless you and keep you tonight. I have the honor of ordaining Louis Henaire. Enjoy it. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4